Hi everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we're going to be talking about the case of the Coleman family murders. So this case, um, where do I begin? So we're going to be talking about Chris Coleman today and this case took place back in 2009 and I'm not going to say too much about what happens right now but all I will say is that Chris Coleman was the Chris Watts before Chris Watts. And it's not just their first name that they have in common. So Chris Coleman was a happily married man. He had two beautiful young children and he also had a very successful career working as a bodyguard to a famous Christian televangelist named Joyce Myers. Everything was going great for Chris. He had this stereotypical perfect life. But then all of a sudden, he started to get all of these mysterious death threats. And these death threats were saying terrible things. They were threatening to kill Chris. They were threatening to kill his whole family. They were threatening very serious harm to him and everyone he loved. And then not long after Chris started receiving these messages, things went horribly wrong. And I mean horribly wrong. So I'm not going to give anything else away. We're going to be getting into all of that today. So this is the case of Chris Coleman, who is known as the original Chris Watts. And if you know what Chris Watts did, you possibly know what we're in for today. So let's just dive right in. So Chris Coleman was born on the 20th of March, 1977, making him a Pisces. He grew up in Chester, Illinois with his parents, Ron and Connie, and his two brothers, Brad and Keith. It's said that when Chris was growing up, he was a very well-mannered child, but he was quite quiet. He was quite reserved. He was the quietest and most reserved out of all three brothers. And he grew up in a very, very religious household. His parents were both co-pastors at a local church and religion was a huge part of the Coleman's family life. Chris had a lot to do with the church when he was growing up. Chris also really excelled in school, but he particularly excelled in sports like athletics. He actually excelled that much that he caught the attention of a Marines recruiter when he was still in high school. And this led to Chris joining the Marines straight out of high school. And once Chris was in the Marines, he worked as a dog handler in the canine team. And again, he really excelled at this. If there is one thing that you should know about Chris is that when it comes to academic or his job, his career or whatever, he excels. And when he was in the Marines as a dog handler, he picked up many awards, honors, certificates, etc. So Chris is a very high achiever, really, to say the least. And it was when Chris was in the Marines, when he was in his early 20s, that he met a woman called Sherry. And Sherry was a military police officer in the US Air Force. And she just happened to be studying one day at the Canine Center. And that is how she met Chris. And the two of them instantly hit it off. And what was just a really weird coincidence is that Sherry was also from Illinois. She lived in Chicago, which I don't think was too far from where Chris lived, I don't think, uh, which meant that they were able to spend quite a lot of time together. So the two of them were kind of dating. I think it's not exactly clear when they officially started dating, but I think at this point they were officially dating and no one really knew about it. Only Chris and Sherry. They kept their relationship quite private in the beginning. And then one day Chris decided to take Sherry back to his parents' house to introduce 
the girl he was seeing to his parents. He didn't tell his parents though that she was his girlfriend. He just introduced her as a friend. But uh, let's just say that this initial meeting of Sherry and Chris's parents did not go well. They did not warm to her at all. And just as a little side note, Chris's parents are part of the reason that my blood boils at this case. So I get the impression that Chris's parents were very protective over Chris. Chris was the apple of his parents' eye and I got the impression that no one would be good enough for their perfect son. They're those kinds of parents, you know? So when Chris arrives at his parents' house to introduce Sherry to his parents, oh my God, his parents' reaction, they instantly didn't like her. They're extremely judgmental. They basically just judged her. They're like looking out the window, like seeing what she looked like. And they instantly judged her by what she looked like. They didn't like that she was wearing short shorts. They also didn't like that she had tattoos on her leg. And they also didn't like the fact that Sherry wasn't very religious. And his dad has said, quote, she's not the person we thought he would be with. And his mom was not very impressed with Sherry either. And he came back with Sherry. What did you think? Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I, was, I was surprised. I wasn't impressed one way or the other. She was just a little blonde headed girl to me. So I think it's safe to say that Sherry was not going to be in for an easy ride. They're extremely judgmental. They're definitely not the kind of in-laws that anyone would want, let's just say. And that is not the end of Chris's parents in this case. Oh god, I have a lot to say about them, but we'll get to that. So Chris introduces Sherry to his parents and like I said he didn't introduce her as his girlfriend. I can understand why he did this because he was probably too scared to say that she's my girlfriend. He probably knew exactly what his parents were thinking and I don't actually have any information about what happened at this little meeting. But after Chris says that he is taking a trip to Chicago to drop Sherry home and then a few days pass and Chris calls his dad from Chicago and he's like oh hi dad how are you how are things how's everything going oh by the way I got married to Sherry and Chris's dad Ron was just like what oh my god I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when he heard that news and it turned out that Sherry was pregnant I don't know when she found out that she was pregnant she probably knew that she was pregnant and Chris probably knew as well when Chris took her to meet his parents obviously he wasn't going to say that was it so because sherry had fallen pregnant they decided between themselves that they wanted to get married that they should get married and chris's parents were not happy this made chris's parents dislike sherry even more because they felt that sherry had trapped chris by falling pregnant and i'm just like uh did you not pay attention in biology class? Because it takes two to tango. And this is not what Sherry had done. She hadn't trapped Chris by getting pregnant. She had just fallen pregnant. And I can't believe that they were trying to blame Sherry. So Chris is now a husband. He's about to become a father. And Chris and Sherry settle into a house in Columbia, Illinois, which is about an hour from Chris's hometown. And not too long after the birth of their first child, Sherry falls pregnant again, and they have two children, two sons called Garrett and Gavin. So now that Chris's life has completely done a 180, he's a husband and he now has two kids, he feels like he wants to leave his job in the Marines. He wants something that is a bit 
more settled, a little bit closer to home. And this is when he found a new job as the bodyguard to famous Christian televangelist Joyce Myers. Now, I didn't know who Joyce Myers was, so um, from what I found out, she is one of the most famous Christian Bible teachers in the US, if not the world. She is a best-selling author as well as a television presenter and she tours the world. She, she does a lot. She's a very busy person. It's perfectly okay for you to go ahead and have a good time while God's working on your problem. And she's pretty famous as well and famous people need bodyguards and this is how Chris got the job as a bodyguard because it turns out that Joyce Myers was a family friend of the Coleman family. She had actually watched Chris grow up, so this is how he got the job as her bodyguard. So Chris starts this job and it pays well, well, well. He was getting over $100,000 a year for doing this job and he loves this job as well because he gets to travel the world. Although I've got to say, he left the military to get a more like settled job, like you know, traveling the world as somebody's personal bodyguard doesn't really seem like a settled job, but whatever. So he has this job, things are going great. He's excelling in his job as well, because like I said, when it comes to anything academic or career-wise, Chris really excels. He throws himself into it and he, he does really well, which I'm not saying that this is a trait of a psychopath, but it kind of is. When you hear like the rest of the case, I kind of think he might be a psychopath. So right now, things are going great for Chris. He has a loving wife. He has two amazing sons. He has this amazing job. He has this really nice house in the suburbs. He really enjoys his job as well. And everything's going great. But that doesn't exactly last for long. As the years pass, cracks start to form in Chris and Sherry's relationship. And most of the reason of the tension and the drifting apart was because of Chris's job, because he was traveling so much. I mean, he wasn't really at home very often. And to make matters worse, oh, I've got to take a brief pause. I've got to gather myself for what I'm about to say. Chris started to get angry at Sherry because she wasn't performing her wifely duties. Oh my God. So when Chris would return home from traveling, he would expect certain things. And when he didn't get it, he got very angry. And I'm just like, oh my God, the nerve of this man. Maybe if he was a decent person, maybe she would be more up for it. And it's reported that Chris started to get a wandering eye because he wasn't getting it at home. So he looked elsewhere and this caused Sherry to distrust him, which um, I'm like, duh, of course he did. And to make the matters even worse for the whole family, Chris started receiving hate mail and threatening messages. And these threatening messages were directly related to his job as a bodyguard to Joyce Myers. The person sending these messages absolutely despised Joyce Myers. And the messages that Chris was receiving were saying things like, tell Joyce Myers to stop preaching her BS or I will kill your whole family. And to begin with, the threatening messages were being sent via email, but no one knew who was sending these emails. They did have an email address of the person sending the emails. And the email address was destroychris at gmail.com. Mm -hmm very creative. And all of the messages had a very similar message. They were stop Joyce Myers preaching BS. 
if you continue supporting Joyce Myers, your family will die. Basically, all the messages threatened to kill Chris's family. And these messages started in November of 2008. And this was 10 years into Chris and Sherry's relationship. And the two sons that they have, Garrett and Gavin, are aged 11 and 9 at this point. And as you can imagine, Sherry was absolutely terrified because of these messages. She was so worried about her children. But no one had any idea of who was sending these messages. And what everyone just found a little bit weird was why is this person sending Chris these messages about Joyce? Because this person clearly hated Joyce Myers. Well then why weren't they sending these messages to Joyce Myers? Why were they sending them to her bodyguard? Things really started to escalate a few months later when Sherry found a letter in the mailbox and it was also a threatening letter. And again, this letter threatened to kill Chris and his family. But the scariest thing about this is that this letter had no mailing address on it, meaning that it was hand delivered. So the person that was threatening Chris and his family was literally right outside the house not too long ago. And Sherry is freaking out and she makes Chris go to the police to file a report. And following this report, a detective, Justin Barlow, offered to help the family and he actually lived on the same street as the Coleman family and he had security cameras outside his house and he decided to point one of those security cameras at the Coleman's house. So hopefully if the person was going to come back around the house, they would be able to catch them on his security cameras. A few days pass and nothing is caught on CCTV, no strange or weird activity. The only clips really that they have of the Coleman house is Chris out in the front garden playing catch with his two sons. However, on the morning of the 5th of May 2009, Justin Barlow gets a call from Chris Coleman and Chris sounds very distressed and very panicked. This call came in at 6.40 a.m. Chris was out of the house. He was at the gym on that morning at that time. And he had been trying to call Sherry from the gym but he couldn't get a hold of her. And he's all panicked because he can't get a hold of her. And obviously because of these threatening letters, he's like, oh my God, I don't know what is going on. I can't get a hold of Sherry. This is not like her. She normally answers. I'm worried that something terrible has happened. Can you go over to the house and check on them? And Justin Barlow agrees. He's like, of course, I'll go check on them. Like, calm down. Like, I'm sure everything is okay. And you can see on the CCTV of his security cameras, at 6.51 a.m., you can see Justin Barlow approaching the Coleman house. The detective knocks on the door, no answer. So he does enter the home. He starts calling Sherry's name. Again, he's not getting any response. He starts to look around the house to see if he can find anyone at this point because there are supposed to be three people in this house, Sherry and the two boys, Gavin and Garrett. And when he enters the bedrooms of the house, he is met with an absolutely just horrific sight. He finds Sherry and the two boys, Gavin and Garrett, all dead in their beds. They had been strangled to death. What was also weird is that there were messages spray painted on the walls, even on the bed of the two boys, which is just so horrible. Like why would anyone spray paint on like a dead child's bed? And the words that were in spray paint said things like, you have paid, fuck you, I'm always watching. And I can't even imagine how traumatizing that would have been for the detective. Like, no one ever expects to see that ever and just the spray painting and just the disrespect because he knows these people like these are his neighbors these are not strangers to him i know he's a detective and i know he comes 
I'm sure he doesn't come across a scene like that every day, but I know he's seen pretty horrible stuff. But these are his neighbors. These are kids that he sees on a daily basis. And to walk in to their bedroom and to see both of those boys strangled to death while they slept in their bed and then spray paint everywhere. Oh my God, it would have just been horrible. And of course, Sherry as well, like a neighbor that he would have seen every day as well. It's just, oh God, the whole thing is just horrible. So Detective Barlow, of course, calls this straight in and the whole house becomes a huge crime scene. Chris arrives home from the gym and Detective Justin Barlow has the absolute horrible job of telling Chris exactly what has happened and the fact that his whole family have been murdered. And it's never easy telling somebody that information and he was expecting Chris to just completely lose it. But what was really surprising is that when Chris was told that his whole family had been murdered, he was weirdly calm. They expected Chris to be in pieces. They expected him to lose it. They expected him to at least ask some questions like what happened? How did they die? Like who did this? Like what is going on? Like just some questions, you know, like normal questions someone would ask after being told that. But he didn't even ask anything. He didn't even ask what happened, nothing. He didn't lose it. There was no emotion. He was just really calm. So the next thing that happens is the police take Chris down to the police station for questioning. So they can ask him like a few questions. Of course, the people closest to the victims are always suspects like to begin with. And they just need to ask him some questions, just routine questions. And it's Detective Justin Barlow that is assigned to carry out the interview. I mean, I did find it a little bit weird that it was Detective Justin Barlow that was assigned to do the interview because I thought, oh, isn't he not too close to the situation? Like, isn't that a little bit of like a conflict of interest and stuff? But then I thought, oh no, because he has a rapport with Chris, doesn't he? He knows Chris, he's his neighbor. And they probably think that he's gonna be able to get more information out of him than someone that Chris doesn't know. So Chris starts by telling the detective that everything was fine. His family were alive, basically, when he left to go to the gym in the morning. Detective Justin Barlow asked, did anything suspicious happen in the last 24 hours? Chris was like, no, everything was normal, everything was fine. Last night, did you, did you guys get any kind of argument or anything? No, last night she fell asleep in my arms on the couch. The detective then noticed some scratch marks on Chris's arm and he asks Chris like where did those scratches come from and Chris all of a sudden starts acting shifty and Chris was like oh I got angry when I was in the ambulance and I started punching a pillow. <laughs> Since when does anyone punch a pillow and get scratch marks on their arm? Like surely he should have come up with a better story than that. And the detective at this point is just like, um, yeah, okay. Okay, I think we have a suspect here. I don't know if the detective thought that Chris was guilty at this point, but he definitely thought that Chris was hiding something and he knew more than he was letting on. But um, did, did anything else happen that you're not telling me? Chris, I'm, I'm getting the sense that you're not being 100% truthful. So as the interview is going on, the crime scene, the house is obviously being looked at and information is coming into Detective Justin Barlow all of the time and a huge discovery is made. The time of death of all three victims was before 3 a.m. When you left the house this morning, mm -hmm. was your wife alive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, what would you say if I told you I, that, that I don't think she was? 
which completely contradicted everything that Chris said because Chris said that his family were alive when he left for the gym at 5.43 a.m. So the time of death was hours before apparently Chris left for the gym. And when Chris is confronted with this in the interview, he starts getting all whiny, he starts putting on a voice. He basically starts acting like a toddler because Chris thinks if he acts like this, he'll get what he wants. Listen, man, she wasn't alive when we left. She was alive. She was. She was laying right beside me. We can go back and forth with this all day long, but the physical evidence doesn't lie. She was. She was not alive when you left this morning. The children weren't alive when we left this morning. Yes, they were. No, come on, Chris. They we got to get over this. But not only that, the CCTV footage that would have been captured from Detective Justin Barlow's house showed absolutely no one entering or leaving that house. The only person that was caught on the CCTV leaving the house was Chris. But the shocking discoveries don't stop there. So the police initially start investigating the threatening emails and messages that Chris was getting because they thought, okay, is this person responsible for killing the whole family? Because they were definitely threatening to. Or the police traced the IP address of the emails and it turns out that the emails were sent from Chris's own laptop. Yeah, that's right. Chris was the one sending himself and his own family these death threats from the email address destroychris at gmail.com. Like I said, that is a very creative email address. It's like, could he not have thought of anything better? And the police also found evidence that he had created that email address on his own laptop as well. So it turns out that the family were never receiving death threats. It was just Chris sending them to himself. And the police were just really confused at this point because they were like, well, why is he sending these death threats to himself? Like, why would anyone do that? Why would Chris send death threats to his own family? But also, why would he murder his whole family? And it doesn't take long for the detectives to get to the bottom of the reason why. Chris had a mistress. Chris had been having an affair behind his wife's back. And when the police started going through Chris's phone records and emails, it didn't take them long to figure out who he was having an affair with. And I've just got to stop. We need to brace ourselves again. So it turns out that the woman that Chris was having an affair with was Sherry's best friend from high school. It's like one thing to have an affair, but to have an affair with the best friend from high school, what? It's like there are so many other people like don't have an affair, but like if you're gonna have an affair, there are so many other people, like why would you go there? And when the police look through the emails and the phone records, they realize that this affair had been going on for months. So do you remember with Chris's job, he would fly around the world with Joyce Myers? Well, it turns out that when he was flying all around the world, he was flying out his mistress, whose name is Tara, by the way. I didn't say, did I? Yeah, he was flying Tara out whenever he was on work trips so he could spend time with her. And the two of them were living it up, going on lavish luxury dates, having all of these fancy meals, getting all dressed up, being all romantic, all behind Sherry's back. Initially, Chris tried to deny the affair, which I don't know why he did that. I mean... He's not stupid, okay? Like, he's pretty intelligent. Surely he would have known that they had all of this evidence. Had you seen anyone else um, outside of your wife in a romantic way? No. Um, Tara, unfortunately, I've talked to her a ton lately, but 
And what's what's with that? Just a friend, someone to talk to. Very close friendship. But were you actually um, doing anything that, that you felt wouldn't be approved by your wife? Some of the conversations. But he couldn't keep up the act for too long because police came across X-rated photos and videos of both Tara and Chris that they had been sending each other. And all of this was on Chris's laptop. As well as a recording of Chris that he was filming himself professing his love for Tara as well. Anyway, just wanted to say I love you. And as you can hear, as funny as you are messaging me now, said, uh, <laughs> show me your picture, say I love my hair today. Look at you, you look so hot. And they believe that his affair with Tara was the reason, the motive behind the murders. But for some reason, they don't have enough evidence right now to charge him with the murders. So they let him go while they build their case. I mean, I know I'm not a detective or anything, but I feel like they've got a lot of evidence already to charge him at least but whatever. So they keep digging into the affair because they think that that is the motive. They concentrate on that. And on Chris's laptop, like I just find this so creepy. There was so much information about Tara, like her measurements, like everywhere and her underwear size and her ring size. He was buying her rings. They were looking at rings together. Chris did buy Tara a promise ring because they were planning on getting married at some point. Mm -hmm. Apparently Chris and Tara had already decided on a wedding date. It's like he's married. Like you're getting a bit ahead of yourself, aren't you? I just found this really weird. There was a list of baby names on Chris's laptop of the names that he wanted to call his children with Tara. It's like, why don't you be a good dad? to your own two sons that you already have. And then this, this just makes my blood boil. Oh my God, <laughs> I'm gonna have to hold my tongue here. So at the funeral of Sherry and Gavin and Garrett, Chris did attend, but the whole time he was texting Tara. He was just saying how much he loved her and how much he missed her. And I'm just like, for one second, put your goddamn phone down. You are at the funeral of your wife and your two sons that you murdered at least. Show a little bit of respect and stop texting your mistress. So the police are now thinking, okay, we need to speak to Tara about all of this. So the police go to Tara's home to speak to her there first. They ask her if she was having an affair with Chris, like what are all the details? And she is nothing like Chris because he was trying to hide the affair. No, she is spilling all of the details. How long have you been in a relationship with Chris? Since late November, early December. Where did all you guys been together? Uh, Phoenix mm -hmm. and Hawaii, Maui. What would he tell his wife when he was gone? He would have just told it that he was working. So Sherry was not aware of the affair that you and him were having? No, I know she suspected, but you know, he always would take pictures when he was going to sleep to prove that, you know, he wasn't sleeping with her or anything. See, now to us, he tried to paint that it was a rosy, perfect marriage. No, they never kissed, never hugged. Registered on some wedding sites and stuff, looked at some rings. I, I looked at stuff, but you know, with his job, he. You know, can't be living with anybody unless he's married. Had you guys ever talked about having children together? Mm-hmm. Without remorse, she openly, almost proudly, tells the police that her and Chris were in love, that they were looking at rings together. They were planning on having children. She just really has no shame. It's actually disgusting. So during the interview, her work phone her up and are like, are you coming into work today? And she responds, in the weirdest way. Like, oh my God, I can't put into words how bizarre that is. It's Tara. Hey, um, no, I'm in the middle of a really high profile murder investigation. Um, I've got a murder investigation. I'm right in the middle of it. Um, 
I have four detectives here sitting at my house. They have no problem giving you proof or anything like that. I thought I was coming into work today. It's like, I get that she's got to inform her work that she's not coming in and stuff. But the way she says it and the way she goes about it is just so... It's weird, like, oh God, no. The police do bring Tara in at a different time as well to interview her down at the police station. And again, her behavior is just bizarre. This whole thing is bizarre. Like, it's like, does she not understand that there is a murder investigation here? Chris's wife and his two children have been murdered. It's, I just can't get my head around it. And as well, because at this point, remember that Chris hasn't formally been charged with the murders yet. So Chris is just like out and everything. So when Tara is in the interview room, Chris actually texts her. And then Tara is in the interview room receiving this text from Chris. And she just comes out and tells the detective like, oh, Chris has just texted me. He's texted me how much he loves me, blah, blah, blah. And it's like time and a place. It's just inappropriate. I just... I just don't understand. I got a text. I know. Uh, you know that. Okay. Um, uh, he texted me. I just thought he, I'd tell you. He, he just what do you want now? Just said he was thinking about me and that the week was at three tomorrow. She's acting so casual about the whole thing. And I can't work out if it's just fake. Like she's just faking this nonchalant behavior. Like she's just trying to put across that she's innocent. Or she really just doesn't care and has no shame. I don't know which one it is. The police also obviously grill her if she knew about the plan to murder Chris's family. And as soon as they get onto this topic, her behavior changes. Like you can see in her body language, it just switches. Did Chris tell you anything about these or that he was planning anything like this? Absolutely. Did not. you have any knowledge of these homicides? No knowledge. Did so, like it or not, unfortunately, <clears throat> your name is Tara Motive. Exactly. So before she was acting all nonchalant, she was like relaxed, the way she was sitting, like everything. And then as soon as the detectives start questioning her about the murder and if it was planned and all stuff like that, her body language changes. She crosses her arms, she crosses her legs, like her legs, like she keeps crossing them and uncrossing them. And she's also like really holding the chair really tight and like pushing back, literally as if she wants the room to swallow her, like she wants to get out. Now, I'm not saying that that is like, evidence of her guilt or whatever. I just found it really bizarre how you can literally see with your own eyes her changing behavior in her body language. I bet you're dying to know, aren't you, how Chris's parents reacted to these accusations. To no surprise, they both tried to deny the whole thing. They both tried to deny the affair with Tara and of course they're gonna deny the murders. So Chrissy's dad, Ron, first tries to deny the affair, tried to deny that it ever happened. And then when he clearly figured out that he could no longer deny it, like there was just so much evidence, he tried to blame Sherry for the affair, saying that she wasn't performing her wifely duties that wifely duties again. And this meant that she didn't respect Chris. Sarah was just meeting a need that Sherry at the time wasn't taken care of. And, but I don't understand. Well, I mean, every man's got his desires and every man has to be respected. It's built into every man. You, If your wife or doesn't respect you, then you're going to find respect someplace else. So are you saying that Sherry was a bad wife? Just at that just at that short brief time, she had stepped back from doing her job as a wife. I just have no words for this man. I really don't remember that he's a pastor. I just feel like that's important. And he's basically saying that because Sherry wasn't having sex with Chris, that means that she doesn't respect him. Yes, I know. He's really saying that sex equals respect. My God. And because Sherry is not giving the respect that Chris deserves, then Chris has every right to search for that respect 
somewhere else. It's not too hard, is it, to figure out why Chris turned out the way he did? Let's just say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But it gets worse. I wish it didn't, but it does. So the police search Ron's laptop. I don't know why they search Ron's laptop. Maybe they just want to be thorough. Maybe they had a suspicion that something might be on there. But thank God they did search it. Because on Ron's laptop, the police find naked pictures of Tara. I know, you can't make this stuff up. Since going through your phone okay. and computer, and obviously we've done the same with Chris's and um, even his dad's. And right. there happens to be a picture of you rather compromising on his father's computer. Okay, So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. Well, it turns out that Chris had been sharing the X-rated pictures of Tara with his dad. I wonder what uh, Ron's wife had to say about that. Anyway, back to the story. So remember that Chris hasn't been charged yet for any of the murders. Well, the police are still working on their investigation and building their case against him. And they do find quite a lot more evidence and it doesn't look good for Chris. They found Chris's DNA under Sherry's fingernails. Do you remember those scratches that Chris had on his arm? that he said that he got from punching a pillow. Well, big surprise, they didn't come from a pillow. They came from Sherry, literally fighting for her life. Police also found a receipt in the house for the can of spray paint. Remember that there was spray paint everywhere. Chris was also seen by a neighbor disposing of his family's possessions just a few days after the murder. They also found texts on Sherry's phone where she was texting a friend saying that Chris had been asking for a divorce recently. She was also telling her friend that she was super suspicious of Chris, like he was acting strange lately. Sherry also told her friend that if something bad ever happened to her, Chris did it. So on the 19th of May, 2009, the police finally arrest Chris and charge him for three counts of first degree murder. So at trial, all of the evidence was presented. They said how Chris had lied about the time of death and that he was actually at home at the time of death, not at the gym, like he had said. They also said that he had been sending himself these death threats and that the email address was made by him. They also obviously talked about the affair, the secret affair with Tara and everything. But the one thing that everybody couldn't get their head around was why? Why did Chris kill his wife and his two sons? Like, why? Yes, he was having an affair, but that still doesn't explain why he did what he did. Well, it turns out that, remember Chris's job? He worked for the famous Christian televangelist, Joyce Meyer. And Chris believed that if he got a divorce, that he would get fired from his job. So that is why he cooked up this whole plan to murder his wife. I don't know why he murdered his two sons. Also, he would become a widow and then he would be able to marry Tara and keep his job. I mean, that's what they're saying the motive is. I just don't get why he murdered two innocent children. Like, why? I mean, Sherry was innocent as well. I'm not saying that, but children, his own children. 
why would he murder them? Tara also turned up at trial to testify. And can you believe she even had the nerve to wear the promise ring that Chris had given her to the trial? Chris's defense obviously said he was innocent and they were pushing the narrative that it was this mystery man that was sending the death threats that murdered his wife and his two sons. They said someone had hacked his computer to send the emails and they also accused the science, yeah, the science of being wrong about the time of death. But in the end, the jury didn't believe any of this BS. I mean, thank God. And the jury came back with a guilty verdict and Chris was sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole. And as the verdict was announced, there were crowds outside of the courtroom and cheers erupted. And you know what? I wish I was there because I'd be cheering as well. After the sentencing, Chris has continued to plead his innocence. He continues with the theory of this mystery man that was sending the death threats. They were the one that murdered his family. Did you kill your wife and your two boys because you wanted a life with your mistress? No, absolutely not. I am 100% innocent. I believe, and I have no doubt whatsoever, it is the uh, person that matches the unknown fingerprints and the unknown footprints and the unknown DNA at the crime scene. And he still insists that the science was wrong. As the body is, has deceased, it's at a the body's normal temperature. And as it cools down to room temperature, the rate that it cools slows down. It actually comes back to 547 in the morning is the time of uh, the deceased. 547? And you left at 545? Yes. Chris has been trying to get a retrial ever since 2011, thankfully unsuccessfully. Like even last year, he was again denied a retrial. And of course, Chris's parents are still denying everything and are still saying that Chris is completely innocent. I mean, did we expect anything less from them? I just think this whole case pretty much just reeks of privilege. I don't know this, this is me just assuming things maybe. But I just feel like Chris has gone through his whole life and he's never been held accountable for anything that he has done. He is used to getting what he wants. He's used to getting his own way. He's used to lying. He's used to just whining and moaning like a toddler and everyone doing what he wants. So does this whole case remind anybody of Chris Watts? Because it literally is the same thing. Similarities are crazy apart from the first name obviously which is just so weird they were both around the same age 32 and 33 at the time of the murders they both murdered their whole family their wife and two kids by strangulation they both had two young children chris watts had two young daughters chris coleman had two young sons they both had mistresses on the side and both of them had x-rated photos and content of their mistress. The motive that both of them had was to start this new life with their mistress as well. And in both cases, Chris Watts and Chris Coleman, their parents are trying to plead their innocence and trying to say that they did nothing wrong. So this case really is Chris Watts before Chris Watts. It happened 10 years prior to the Chris Watts case but it is nowhere near as well known. And the only thing that I can think of is that Chris Watts happened in 2018 in like the height of social media. Like everyone has social media, everyone's on their phones, everyone's on the internet. And the case of Chris Coleman happened in 2009 where social media and everything was in its infancy. And I just don't get what possesses these people to murder their whole family. Why do these people 
not know the word divorce. I just don't get why these people think that the only answer is murder. Like, how does one think like that? And there is no doubt in my mind, not that I'm diagnosing him, but there is no doubt in my mind that Chris Coleman and Chris Watts, but this video is about Chris Coleman, Chris Coleman is a psychopath. And what happened to Sherry and Garrett and Gavin is just absolutely heartbreaking. And Chris is just still like pleading his innocence, trying to get out. And it's just like, oh, just admit what you did. It's like, stop making this all about you. But he's a narcissist, so he doesn't know how to do that. And my heart goes out to Sherry, Gavin and Garrett's family. I hope they're okay. And I just wish that Chris would just admit what he did and just, just come out with it, you know, give the family some closure. So that was the case of Chris Coleman and oh my God, another case involving children. Just the thought that a parent is capable of something like this is just truly impossible to even wrap your head around. I have no updates for you on this case. Chris Coleman is still behind bars where he belongs and hopefully it will remain that way. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you love the show, I would love it if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.